BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi there, you are listening to A Diversion from Seneca, the first of an occasional series of chats with a variety of fascinating guests talking to me, Jeremy Goldcorn, about China and all kinds of other things. This episode took a few months to bring together. It was recorded in November 2020, just after the US elections, but it covers a subject who is more than 2,000 years old, the Chinese philosopher-statesman Han Fei. He lived 280 to 233 BC, but his ideas seem so much more relevant to understanding China today than, say, the more famous analects of Confucius or the ideas in The Art of War by Sunzi. Before we begin the conversation, let me give a quick plug for SubChina AM, our new daily newsletter covering business in China that goes out every day at 9 p.m. Beijing time, 9 a.m. New York time. Go to subchina.com slash newsletters to subscribe. Now, on with the show. Jeremy Bame is a sinologist and historian, publisher and recovering academic who first went to China in the dying years of the Cultural Revolution, where he did manual labor, studied the works of Mao and Marx, and ate a lot of terrible food. He is the editor and publisher of China Heritage at ChinaHeritage.net. Welcome, Jeremy. Kia ora, Jeremy. Hi. And Jia Jianying writes, of course, for The New Yorker and is the author of several books, most recently Tide Players, The Movers and Shakers of a Rising China. Welcome, Jianying, and let's hope our technical issues are resolved this time. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for inviting me to this conversation. Hi. Jeremy recently, the other Jeremy, recently edited and published a five-part essay by Jianying titled China's Heart of Darkness, Prince Hanfei and Chairman Xi Jinping, which is what we're going to talk about today, as well as some other things. Prince Hanfei, or Hanfeizi, is perhaps the most influential Chinese thinker that most Westerners have never heard of. Stuffy old Confucius is probably the world's most famous Chinese thinker. Sunzi, he of the art of war, is every Western business book's favorite Chinese strategist, while reputed author of the Taoist text Dao De Jing, Laozi is beloved of Western hippies and corporate speakers. I'd say I think that Mencius or Mengzi and Zhuangzi of the famous Butterfly Dream are on the Western world's B-list of Chinese philosophers and thinkers. But even less famous than the two of them, outside of China at least, uh, is Prince Hanfei, who I might argue is perhaps more important than any of the aforementioned gentlemen when it comes to understanding what is going on in China right now, in Xi Jinping's China. And we'll get to Xi Jinping a little later. But first, can I ask you, Jing, who is Prince Hanfei? Can you give us a, a brief biography? 
Ah,、uh, sure. Okay, Han Fei is one of the princes of the state of Han, which was one of the seven states during the so-called Warring States period in ancient China. Which you know, this、uh, generally term used in Chinese among Chinese historians is pre-Qin, which basically covers a span of about eight hundred years, referring to the the Chunqiu and Zhangguo, the period of a、uh, spring and autumn, and the period of warring states,、um, which was a golden age for Chinese thought. Prince Hanfei lives towards the end of this period, which was about uh, say two hundred eighty to two hundred thirty three BC, as far as we know, because his biography was quite sketchy.、Uh, but anyway, he's one of the prize students of a a very、uh, famous Confucius scholar named Xunzi. Uh, which was kind of a Aristotelian、uh, kind of a figure in charge of this famous Jixia Academy,、uh, where Han Fei studied as a as a young prince. But、uh, he kind of went in a almost a opposite direction、uh, from his mentor, which、um, was you know he he became、uh, someone who synthesized. A lot of other schools of thoughts thriving during that period, including Taoism and other, you know, military school of military thoughts, and also these tacticians, and also based on the earlier legalist thinkers such as Lord Shang, you know, Shang Yang, who was a very influential and important、uh, thinker and as an architect of reform for the state of Qin. And so he,、uh, Han Fei, basically synthesized a lot of these and debunked、uh, Confucianism. You know,、uh, wrote this master work called Han Fei Zi,、uh, which became the foundational text、uh, for a mature version of legalist thinking. And、uh, Jing, sorry to interrupt, but could we define legalism since that really is?、Uh... What we're talking about.、Uh, what does it mean? Okay, legalism. I mean,、um, it was often misunderstood with the rule of law, but it really is radically different from that. It sort of was rooted in the earlier、uh, version of the、uh, legalist think, so-called legalist thinking, though the term was,、uh, you know, used much later,、uh, which was, you know, the thought that. In order to, it's a, a way of governing a state through,、uh, you know, penal laws and,、um, you know, uh, uh, criminal laws as a more, you know, useful instrument、uh, for、uh, for governance. Which was, you know, before this, the Confucius thinking was, you know,、uh, using a, a set of rights. Um, as a, you know, the moral、uh, education at the center of、um, uh, governing the people, which is you know by you know sort of moral education or practicing sort of Confucius rights、uh, to instill、uh, you know uh, the uh, thought of you know proper behavior and and、uh, you know respect for authorities, but the legalists thought that was really too. Wimpy and and it's you know it's not going to actually、uh, lead to real obedience to the state. So you know the legalist thinking introduced a much more authoritarian kind of top-down、uh, way of rule, which you know、uh, started from the state of Qi 
Um, but then it spread to other states through the hands of, you know, like um, Shangyang and Wuqi, and then uh, um, through then later, of course, through Hanfei. And it was really the foundational kind of philosophy um, for the state of Qin, you know, uh, the, the, the king who eventually unified China towards the end of, um, you know, uh, third century and became the first emperor of China. What made you want to write about uh, Han Feizhe, uh, this year? Actually, it started two years ago uh, when I uh, first published a New Yorker piece about this strange practice of Beiliu, uh, which, you know, the, the, that, that was a piece that came out in, the I think, December 2018. And it was about how the police, you know, used um, this uh, strange practice of taking all the dissidents out of, uh, say, uh, Beijing, the capital, during the so-called sensitive periods when there's a, a party, uh, you know, congress or uh, international forum uh, happening. So they would take these dissidents, escorted by a team of police, uh, in plain clothes, cl police out of the capital so that they would have no way to speak to the media uh, in town. Uh, that's a, a kind of a very Chinese style way of maintaining, you know, social uh, stability. And so that led me to think about a kind of follow-up study about what is really the root of this peculiar Chinese style, you know, police state and to track the sort of intellectual and cultural roots to this way of using law uh, in the name of um, preserving and maintaining social st stability, but really a more, you know, sort of ruthless way of cracking down on all forms of dissent and uh, reining in all the, you know, rebels and, and you know, uh, and, um, you know, produce a kind of um, uh, a police state in the name of rule of law and how that was manipulated and distorted all the way through different, you know, dynasties and all this to the present day of Xi Jinping, because Xi Jinping happens to be probably the first Chinese Communist Party leader who emphasized so much uh, the use of law. And uh, though, you know, with him, it was a complete uh, in his speeches and addresses, it was a, a real uh, double speak. Um, he speaks a rule of law, uh, but in fact, underneath it, when I uh, began to reread Han Feizi, which I did, you know, the, um, about two years ago, you know, I, I realized the connection between this uh, archaic text that was written over 2000 years ago really had been a kind of a hidden tradition intellect tradition that has never been, you know, really uh, looked at closely or, you know, taken very seriously by political scientists or, you know, not to, to say outside China, but even in China, uh, a lot of intellectuals often focused on either uh, looking at the Confucius tradition or looking at, you know, the Marxist-Leninist heritage to, you know, interpret the CCP rule. Um, let's get back to the, the question of, you know, what law means in China to, to Han Fei and to Xi Jinping and others a little later. But Jeremy, can I 
ask you, uh, why did you want to edit and publish Jing's essay? And, you know, to the two of you, how did this come together on China heritage? Oh, well, I, I, first I should say that Jianying and I <clears throat> have known of each other and been friendly from afar, so to speak, as reading friends for over 30 years. But it wasn't until 2017 that we actually met. We both used to publish in the magazine in Hong Kong called and Jianying was very active there as she also began publishing a great series of works in English about contemporary China and intellectual life. So I've long admired her work. And it just happened last year in November 2019. Kevin Rudd of the Asia Society invited me to New York to give a talk. And the thing I addressed was really the things that were happening around the 1st of October, 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. And Xi Jinping had just released an essay on the 2nd of October about Chinese history, politics, and the future. And in that piece, he mentioned the Qin Emperor who and discussed a number of issues to do with this long tradition of autocracy in China. Uh, the Qin Emperor was a great favorite of Chairman Mao's. And in my talk, I mentioned the Qin. I mentioned Mao's obsession with the Qin Emperor, who was, in fact, enacted, operationalized Han Fei's thinking in many ways. Um, and I said that Mao famously regarded himself as being, he said it, an expression he used, I am a mixture of Marx plus Qin Shi Huang. Um, and over lunch after that talk, Jenning said, oh, it was wonderful to hear this talk. I enjoyed it very much. Well, he's very polite. And as we were all chatting, he said, in fact, I wrote a piece about Han Fei and the legalists and the Qin emperor and present significance of it uh, for, the, for the New Yorker. And that didn't, they thought it was a bit too difficult uh, for them to cope with. And I said, oh, that sounds great. Can you show it to me? I'd love to read it. And then over the next few weeks in November, December last year, Jen Ying shared her draft with me and we began discussing it. And I being pushy, I just said, could you please expand it and add this and add that and so on and so forth. And so over the next couple of months, Jen Ying expanded the essay um, and it ended up being this very, it's about 25,000 words now. And um, with the aim, I, I wanted Jen Ying to do it with the aim of publishing it in China Heritage, because I thought it's incredibly interesting and informative and important, but um, not that easy for big journals, Western English language mainstream journals to publish. And Jen Ying very kindly expanded and expanded and answered all <laughs> my pesky questions and queries and uh, ended up producing this wonderful essay. So that's how it really came about. Jen Ying, I hope that's correct. That seems to be my memory of it. Oh, definitely. I was actually uh, s <laughs> delighted that uh, by Jeremy's immediate reaction that he would uh, he, he, he really likes this and thought it was important piece and he would be willing to work with me. And since then, we have had, you know, uh, weeks and of constant, you know, back and forth, both, you know, discussion over coffee at, you know, New York cafes. And also, you know, after he returned to, to New Zealand, we ha also had many rounds of um, discussions through emails and telephones. And, and then, so as Jeremy said, it kept on this expanding uh, probably three times or more uh, the original draft plus a lot of notes, which, uh, you know, um, is in fact, the first time I, I, I did actually footnotes, um, uh, you know, as in before in, in sort of journalist pieces, you cannot really have footnotes. So Je it was Jeremy can be liberating. a very demanding editor. I, I know the suffering. Um, 
Very pushy, very demanding editor, and he knows absolutely everything. So you know you can't get lazy for it's very for, for anything. <laughs> and instead of being no shorter and simpler, he's like. Longer, <laughs> more complex. You need to, you know, go a bit further into this and that. But I, I must say, it was、uh, such a, a liberating, you know, experience. It was,、uh, you know, delightful. I'd like to just say, I mean, Jenyan can can address the issue of how of her youthful engagement with Han Fazer, and she describes it very beautifully in the essay as she starts、uh, in the prologue to the the piece. But I should just sort of say that my own interest in Han Fei and the Legalists. Began even before I went to China as a twenty-year-old. In my nineteenth year, the anti-Confucius,、um, anti-Lin Biao, pro-legalist political movement was going on in China, and it's one of the first things I read about as an, un- an undergraduate when we, I could read basic Marxist-style Chinese. And when I went to China, that was what the—that's the movement that was on. And so I read my first Chinese comic book was about Shang Jun, Shang Yang, and. <laughs> Shangyang's legalism and Han Fazer and so on and so forth. So from the very start of my life in the mainland,、um, legalism and its history and importance because of Mao、um, was part of the repertoire. And later, people just dismissed the whole legalist movement, anti-Confucian,、uh, pro-legalist movement, and its analysis of Chinese history. I personally never did because I've. By studying at that time in my very early years, and then paying attention to how, after the Cultural Revolution, they brought back Pungjin and these other incredible,、uh, tough legal—what you'd call legalist thugs—to run China's modern legal system,、um, I realized that this long tradition was of great importance. Never wrote anything about it, but the minute that Jenning mentioned her work, I said, "My,、well, this is so important! How wonderful to have somebody finally addressing this." So I- I'm going to try and kind of dumb things down to my level,、uh, uh, and then ask the. Of you to expand on it for more uh, uh, complexity.、Um, how are we to understand legalism? And you know, am I correct to use the Chinese word "fajia"?、Uh, legalism and its relationship to what the Communist Party now calls rule of law, or sometimes is translated as rule by law, for which there are two characters.、Uh, Both pronounced "fajir," that mean slightly different things. Could the two of you sort of lay out the landscape of of these words and how w- w- what the differences are between them? First, I'd just like to say just a, a little word about this. It is a very complex world, but Jenning touched on that on this, and that is. With the rise of the legalist school of thought, and this is a school of thought, as, as, and 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 Jenny goes into great detail about its origins, influence, and then impact on Xi Jinping. But it has at its core not only this belief in using strict regulations and laws that cover every aspect of social life, as well as commerce, as well as military life, as well as、um, rule rulership.、Um, it also has. Inside it, in its very core, an extremely a spiritual dimension, and that is a belief not only in the perfectibility of humankind or man, to use the older word, but also that by correct regulation of a society, you're engaging in a kind of a spiritual, a numinous activity that is about coordinating human life in correspondence with the grand principles of eternity, and this. So the legalism—it's harsh and cruel and demanding—but it also is aimed at a utopian 
a remaking of humanity. And this is one of the reasons it gels so perfectly with a Marxist-Leninist, and here I'd say Leninist, as well as the Chinese version of Marxism-Leninism as Maoism-Xi Jinpingism, is this law, regulation, control, manipulation aligned with a certain element of what we would regard as being the spiritual, that is aiming at controlling, uplifting and transforming human nature and the spirit itself. And that's what makes it particularly difficult to grasp, because it's not just imposing tough laws and being mean (laughs) and being cruel. It's also with the aim of doing that so as to bring about social perfection. So it's not so much holding the ruler to account by impartial laws. It's setting a set of rules for the common people to obey in order for society to run well and bashing them over the head with those rules if they step out of line. Well, from the very earliest moment when legalism is employed, and Jenny can address this better than me, there's this element also that, that the ruler, the emperor, is themselves a morally superior being. This is why, because of their de, which means both moral power and political power, it means power, control, and also morality. Because of their de, they rule. And therefore, what they impose is for the betterment of everybody. It's the ultimate form of, of, um, of patriarchal um, control and manipulation. So, Jane, can I ask you to tease out the difference between the two Fajr and, and, and how we should understand them in Xi Jinping's China in the context of legalism? After um, this Hanfei piece came out in China Heritage, I received um, a lot of, you know, different responses from readers. And, and one um, particular kind of stuck in my mind is that someone who uh, said it was was a uh, American sociologist uh, who said, you know, um, you, you compared actually in the essay was just briefly compared uh, Machiavelli with uh, Han Fei, and he said, but you know, uh, Han Fei seemed to be much more cynical, whereas Machiavelli had a, a more of an idealistic aspect, which I think, of course, he refers to probably the. The, um, the Florentine republicanism that in Machiavelli, even though, you know, he's pretty cynical himself, you know, in the actual, you know, using of, um, you know, uh, the, the, the way of, uh, you know, maintaining power. But Han Fei's utopianism aspect is, is different. Of course, there's none of the republicanism in it. But I think his uh, view of law has also a certain idealistic dimension in that he feels even though uh, the uh, personal virtues uh, of the emperor cannot be, you know, uh, just came by training because a lot of there's a lot of disputes even, you know, before Han Fei's time, uh, famously cruel and everything. But law is something that's so kind of neutral and could be applied uniformly by uh, uh, any emperor, even if it's, you know, you can't maybe mitigate the worst despots, but, you know, you can use law to rule a country, even with a, media, a lot of emperors or kings in, in uh, Han Fei's eyes are, are someone who's neither extraordinarily virtuous nor very talented. But if you, you have, you know, followed this kind of uniform standard of law, 
ah、uh, through the all levels of government, then even with you know the average emperor or king ruler can achieve a, a sort of a, a fairly good level of government where you have both social order and also kind of、uh, a strong state. Ah,、uh, so in in that aspect, I think Hanfei himself is both cynical and idealistic, if you can put that. Also, he has a view of law that、uh, absorbed a, a a level of Taoist element, which which treats you know the ruling of the state with through law with as a as, as a form of art. So in the he's you know quite large. And reach toolkit、uh, kit of you know legal rule. Hanfei actually offered、uh, not only just these、um, uh, penal laws that should be publicized so that everyone knows,、uh, and it's not just personalistic, but also a set of、uh, rules that the emperor、uh, could, by sitting、uh, in the palace, could actually use law and other tactics,、uh, such as I mean here this is where you get. A sort of prototype of、um, police state,、uh, which、uh, through the hands of emperor he can manipulate different levels of、uh, officials and underlings. So they have to follow a set of、uh, published laws. You know, not only following their own profit. And so, you know, in his eyes, I think it's a, a, a sophisticated set of methods in the name of rule of law. Um, not just to strengthen、uh, the emperor, but also at the same time achieve a kind of、uh, fairly competent and good, you know, state of、uh, state of government. So, so in other words, a, a way for a, a man of mediocre intelligence、uh, like Xi Jinping to rule wisely. <laughs> if that <laughs> argument is followed through, yeah, well, you you can say、uh, Xi Jinping, it, you know, depending on how which aspect of Han Feizi you're 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 reading, ah,、uh, he's、uh, he's a good student and also a bad student. I mean, because he he really manipulates law, ah,、uh, so much. Uh, for his own self-interest, you know, we all know the most, of course, the notorious part is he stripped the term limits completely. But also, he often, you know, would force、uh, he and his men、um, passing new these new laws.、Um, you know,、uh, you know, on the surface, they really seem to be passed by the the People's、uh, Congress. But in fact, you know, he treats that as a complete rubber stamp, and he uses the party's disciplinary code、uh, internally to, you know, carry out his,、uh, you know, awards and punishment. That's how you know he uses,、uh, you know, the the more I would say darker aspect of Han Feizi, the technical, the shu,、uh, the shu part, the technical part,、um, to,、uh, you know. Uh, enforce this particular form of rule by law,、uh, or in in fact, you know that that's a that melts very、um, you know nicely with the Leninist disciplinary、um, codes. So you know it's 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 not just Han Feizi or just Leninist. I think it's a it's a like a. Uh, uh, amalgamation of traditional Chinese legalism with the modern kind of Leninist party、um, heritage. 
Um, can I just ask one more question about sort of the meaning of fa uh, of, of law in in China? Um, when when Han Feizi was writing, when he used law, do you think he was aware of the sort of hypocrisy that we might read into it now uh, of an approach of using laws to enforce the authority uh, and the power of the ruler? rather than to hold the ruler to account. Um, you know, is the ambiguity between the two Fajr characters, the rule of law, rule by law in contemporary China, was that a reality in Han Feizi's time as well? And we are just seeing a slightly different version of it. Or has the meaning of the word law in China changed uh, because of the introduction of foreign ideas or for some other reason over time? As you said, the introduction of... of, of what do you call? Well, you'd have to call them global norms of law because um, the way the China, the China was introduced was really to a great extent through Japan. So one can't just say it's just Western values. The ideas had been circulated through Japan to China and originated in the West. But this whole body of law and legal thought that in the, in the Western tradition, i.e. the European tradition, traces its origins back in particular to Roman times. This had a huge impact on 20th century China and continues to be um, in form and in, engage Chinese legal thinkers to this day. The Communist Party, um, as you know, in the last 10, 15 years has moved in various directions. In one direction, it seemed to be moving more towards what we regard as being a more modern, globalized version of law and legality. And that's why in relation to international law and in relation to even those undertakings that the Chinese authorities had made with over Hong Kong with Britain and the way that China was regulating itself in terms of a whole range of issues from intellectual property and so on and so forth. This is one of the cruxes of the great strife between America and China at the moment. But under Xi Jinping, we've seen a move back to, uh, well, back on one level and also an advance back to this sort of modern recalibrated version of traditional legal thinking which is which is in service of the ruler ruling class and the ruling organization whether it be dynastic or the communist party and in that system there's a pretense that people are all equal before the law but that's not true and the law is not something that is above or beyond the party organization or in fact the party leader and that is something that is rather difficult to grasp that the law is something that is manipulated by the party for its own ends, which it believes are for the betterment of the society. This is where it parallels what happened in the Soviet Union. Nowadays, many of the legal actions against dissidents and against activists in China really reflect the types of legal system that developed in the Soviet Union in the 1930s, the Wojcinski model of rulership that was introduced by the Communist Party in 1937-89 and has been part of the tradition. So as Jianying was saying, this, this strange traditional version of law and this modern Western version of law along with the Soviet version of law are all intermingled and are a constant um, entanglement. And Xi Jinping and his colleagues, as you know, Jeremy, spend a huge amount of time in legalistic wranglings over how to not only impose law and police it, but how to write it all up and revise it and correct it. They're obsessed with the, with the wording and the statutes and so on and so forth, even though the ultimate aim is to use the law, as Jenning was saying, for the sake of the party or the party's leader's benefit, believing that the party leader and the party are themselves the incarnation 
of history and progress and modernity. And and just to add one uh, concrete example of that, I, I think is uh, this was uh, one of the uh, kind of. Uh, um, prominent uh, uh, lawyers in a, in, a, in a commercial law firm in Beijing who said to me about, oh, you know, six or seven years ago, he said, you know, if you were, really want to just distill the state of uh, uh, legal practice or law in China, uh, you could just um, uh, go with this uh, saying of, you know, basically it's, um, uh, in Chinese, it's, uh, you know, 小案看法治 uh, that means, you know, uh, in small cases, you have a level of rule, rule of law, and which are usually uh, very local, often commercial or civil dispute, uh, that there maybe the, the actual legal codes are, can be followed or can be at least appealed to uh, in the court. But the, the medium-sized, uh, um, you know, cases, which involves, you know, um, politics at local level and, you know, uh, officials and uh, bigger corporations or companies, you know, um, th- that depends on contacts, networking, meaning who's your backers, who do you have a political, you know, a patron that can, you know, intervene. And then the big cases, which is the national cases, um, it says it's completely politics. Kanzhengzhi uh, means, you know, uh, the party, is, uh, you know, decides. And there's, uh, you know, really nothing. Um, following the law is just a piece of paper. This, of course, we can, we can see in all these sort of show trials, really, of, say, you know, Bo Xilai or, or um, Zhou Yunkang or the more recent, you know, case of Ren Zhiqiang who got 18 years on the so-called, you know, uh, corruption, <laughs> business corruption. But everyone knows it's, it's, it's politics. It's because he wrote an essay that uh, offended uh, the dear leader, uh, Xi Jinping. And I I mean, I I guess you can smell the same strong stench of politics in the midnight suspension of Ant Group's IPO. Uh, uh, Reporting uh, soon after that indicated that Xi Jinping was personally offended by Jack Ma's speech and thus the IPO, what was to have been the world's biggest IPO, was suspended. Um, Indeed, it was a wonderful illustration of, so you want to deal with China, you want to think China's part of the global community, you want to think it's just like, oh, they're just like us, you want to do what I call the kumbaya China, well, this is reality. Wake up and smell, as they say, wake up and smell the coffee. Right. Um, Let's talk about a few other things, but before we leave Han Feizer, maybe I could just read a, a couple of lines uh, of Jian Yang's. Reading Han Feizer this time around, I no longer found myself bored. Instead, it was a disturbing and chilling experience. I shuddered at the cynical dismissal of morality in this ancient text, the paranoid mindset of its author, his misanthropic worldview. But I was also impressed by the profound learning, the complete absence of sentimentality in Han Fei and his unsparing honesty, his ruthless yet often brilliant insights into power, political strategy, and the fine art of psychological manipulation are a thing of wonder. That's uh, quite a a description of Han Fei. How do you rate Xi Jinping on the Han Feiometer in terms of uh, misanthropism, paranoid mindset, uh, cynical uh, dismissal of morality, Jianying? 
if I may ask a cheeky question. Oh, I I think you know if you give an academic rating, he's maybe you know I I'm I'm very doubtful that he's actually read uh, most of Han Fei's. This is a uh, you know a a archaic text of over one thousand pages with with text and and and. Annotation, but um, you know, so there, I think he, he, I would say C minors. But you know, if you you put it into practice, um, that's what I'm know, asking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he would he would have to be a uh, you know probably A minors. If I would say, of course, we you know everything is still unfolding. We don't know how far, and he he certainly you know we we don't have time to go into specific specifics here, but he failed even by Hanfei's standard in several aspects, if you go by the, the, the canon, you know, of, of legalism. But in terms of how much he's already managed to achieve of, you know, putting every, you know, the entire Chinese officialdom and bureaucracy and, and intellectuals in terror of him, they all are kowtowing to the new, you know, uh, legalist emperor. <laughs> uh, so there he, he gets, in, in my uh, ranking, very good scores. A, a minus. So does Chairman Mao, did he get an A plus? Oh, Chairman Mao is above law. It's <laughs> above it all. He didn't have to bother with, you know, <laughs> with the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's beyond the chart. Chairman Mao is beyond the chart. <laughs> If I if I could observe on Mao, after all, they still can't get rid of him. He's a man who floats above. Now he floats above history and law and everything. He is now an eternal, you know, cultural figure like Napoleon in France. And He's not in, going in, anywhere. Yeah, he so Mao. Can, I think Mao would be the mystic dragon king in Tanfei's uh, description. You know, uh, so that this is. You know, the, I mean, I I think uh, compared to Mao. She will, will forever have to be a wannabe. Except in one area, and this is where, you know, if it's in practical political terms, this is very concerning. That's true. Well, two areas. One is facing off America, and the second is resolving national unity, the Daitong, the great unification of the state, and therefore Taiwan. And this is one area that I would imagine I've thought for many, many years he believes, Xi Jinping believes he can outrank Mao and do something that none of the others, none of the other revolutionaries of 20th century China, in fact, because Xi Jinping is in a, in a lineage of revolutionary leaders, not just Mao, but all of them, um, he will do something unique. And so that's um, of significance for people who follow China today. And people who live anywhere near the South and East China Seas. And well, the rest of the world, or, or the Asia Pacific, if I may call, comment from my own little perch in the world in New Zealand, it matters a great deal. Oh, the Indo-Pacific, oh, I believe, is the new Indo-Pacific. Oh, well, Indo-Pacific, yeah. I, mean, I mean, speak with America, America, you know. And <laughs> well, I, no, I would say also, Xi is a pretty lucky guy. You know, he has time timing, you know, not thanks to him, but um, he came to power on the, uh, you know, top of 40 decades of sort of done uh, ushered in, you know, economic reform. So the state was fat with money. And also he's, uh, you know, uh, exploiting the current, of course, ongoing uh, crisis um, in the in Western uh, democracy, you know, and, and so in, in that aspect, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's a lucky fellow. 
He was born with a red spoon in his mouth. Mao did have to fight all those bloody, you know, battles on the way to power, both in terms of his theoretical, you know, um, enemies like 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 Ming, and also you know, uh, the nationalists and 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 all that. But um, uh, Xi Jinping just <laughs> had to lie low, climb the ladder, the official ladder, and. And now here he is, you know. So I would like to talk about two two more things today. The one is uh, during your recent essay, uh, not essay, conversation uh, uh, that was published, um, uh, Freedom is Not Free in Chinese, with I think a partial translation so far on Jeremy's site, China Heritage. But before that, maybe I can just ask, there's been... Uh, a recent uh, outpouring of support for Donald Trump from various characters uh, uh, from China's dissident or anti-establishment community, ranging from Ai Weiwei, who's been retweeting uh, conspiracy theories about the American election, pro-Trumpist conspiracy theories, uh, as has, I think, Liao Yiwu, um, uh, and there have been uh, various peop- articles about people like Wang Dun, the uh, 1989 dissident who's been living in America, who has become a Trump supporter. What What's going on with these people? Uh, I can kind of understand the new immigrants arriving from China. They don't like affirmative action. They've got their money and they want to keep it and they like low taxes and all that macho business bullshit. But what what is with people who oppose oppression in China uh, and discrimination uh, supporting Donald Trump? Because it's it's not just a few of them. It, it's it's a, an observable phenomenon. Jeremy, maybe you could take a stab at it first. Oh, well, uh, Jenny and I have discussed this a great deal. Jenny gets she has very um impassioned response. Being an American, of course, also helps. I'm not being not an American myself and free of that type of emotional aspect of things. I I have a slightly different view. And also I have a different view that's somewhat influenced by my involvement with the late 80s democracy activists and the 89 movement. And then having spent years um, studying the dissident community in America and independent intellectuals in China and made a movie, Gate of Heavenly Peace, about the 89 movement and then being dragged through six years of litigation in America by China's so-called goddess of democracy, Chai Ling. Uh, she sued our company, the Longbow Group, Karma Hinton and Richard Gordon, and uh, in, involving me as well, for our movie. And that reflected already a sort of, she was a, became a fundamentalist, Christian, reactionary, uh, pro-Republican, uh, conspiracy theory, theory nutter, nutter. This is 10, 15 years ago. So I've had a long history of being, of observing this type of both self-hate, this this contempt for one's own impotence in a political process that's also involved with what I believe is um, a complete contempt for democratic norms and legal norms. The belief that trained in China, in a China where legalist thought, a la Hanfei, has been around in particular during the communist era from the 1940s, in which law and elections and ideas are all manipulated for the sake of power and oneself or one's group. And I'm afraid that I very, very crudely put, and I, I don't read tons of the stuff about the Trump, the Trump, the Chinese Trumpen, they're called, the, the, the Trump fans uh, or the Trumpites. I don't read too much because it's just so sullying and so vile and beneath contempt. But it is part of a much longer 
cultural, political, and um, social matrix that goes back throughout the 20th century in particular. And we've seen it um, in many forms. And this is the latest, the latest articulation of it. And it's really, for those who are not familiar with this landscape, it's pretty breathtaking. Sorry, Jenny, you have much, much more informed views. <laughs> no, not much more, but because I'm partially uh, uh, feeling, you know, so outraged by by um, this uh, the, this phenomenon of so many, you know, raving uh, Trump fans who have been um, my so-called Chinese liberal comrades of the last uh, at least thirty years since Tiananmen, and so many of them. Have become, you know, the uh, these uh, super spreaders, at least on the Chinese, you know, uh, internet and uh, media, um, you know, of conspiracy theories and and also in the process revealing their own, uh, you know, uh, bigotry in so many ways, uh, you know, racism, misogynism, and Islamophobia, and you name it, you know, and and then these are supposed to be, you know, a community of um, uh, believers of universal values, in Chinese, you know. So, you know, all of a sudden, uh, now all the, you know, uh, all of them seem to only really care about their own, you know, self-interest, their own, uh, you know, failed cause of, you know, fighting for democracy in China or for their own, you know, right, uh, rights of free speech in China, all of a sudden you realize they really don't, don't give a damn about the rights of anyone else outside that context. And, and in fact, they have such contempt, open, ugly, grotesque contempt for, you know, uh, the civil rights, um, you know, movement, the Black uh, Lives Matter movements in, in the U.S., uh, about the, you know, the, the rights of refugees, um, and, you know, the, the rights of, uh, you know, new immigrants, um, and the, the feminist movements, and, and they, they, they love this, uh, this, uh, you know, sort of, uh, demonization of the so-called white uh, you know, white leftists who were supposed to be responsible for the downfall of, you know, the great, you know, white Christian, uh, West, uh, which used to be so beautiful and now completely, you know, soiled and, and, uh, you know, uh, dumbed down by all these, uh, stupid new immigrants and, and, you know, uh, cultural Marxists, uh, uh, you know, who smoked dope and, and, you know, all came from the 1960s, right? And I mean, this is, these are the people I, some of them at least, I admired, uh, for many years. Some of them were, you know, uh, dissidents on, you know, uh, uh, Tiananmen, and some of them were, you know, imprisoned, uh, fighting for civil rights, you know, like, uh, I remember this shocking moment. Uh, this was actually going bef- uh, uh, a few years back in the, t- during the time of, uh, 2016, you know, uh, uh the first Trump, election, uh, first election when Trump won. And one of the civil, uh, civil rights lawyers in China uh, basically it, it used the word openly, the N word to describe, to call uh, Obama. Every time it's actually, you know, Heigui, you know, it's a black devil. Now it's, it's equivalent of, of the N words. Uh, and then uh, you, every time you talked about Hillary, it has to be, it's, it's the, of course, it's the, it's the, the B word in English, but in, in Chinese, it actually was Lao Jinyu. 
you know, old whore. And uh, and so a lot of these uh, public, so-called public intellectuals already kind of smelled of their, their, their kind of um, male chauvinistic, misogynist views during the Chinese mini version of Me Too movement in China. I, it was just very limited, of course, as any you know, so, so-called, you know, radical movement, uh, it has problems. And I have problems with a lot of the, you know, uh, PC politics in, in, in uh, Western academias here. But we're not, that's not the, the degree uh, of discontent we're talking about. I'm talking about the real heavy dose, uh, ugly, naked, you know, sort of uh, uh, bigotry among the so-called liberals in China. And then all of a sudden, because they're so desperate in their failure of, you know, um, of the liberal agenda in China, uh, which I have full sympathy, of course, under a leader of, of Xi Jinping, what else can you expect, right? But to, you know, project their, you know, uh, failed, you know, cause uh, the, the solution onto someone like Donald Trump is just beyond. I mean, this is so surreal to me. Uh, I, I have to say, I, I view this whole thing with such horror, especially since the, the you know, uh, the George Floyd uh, protest. If you just go into any of these um, big WeChat groups uh, full of Chinese liberals and public intellectuals and, 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 and just to read the messages, it's just sickening. I mean, this is really not encouraging uh, for anyone who cares about um, you know, the spreading of, China, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, in, uh, liberal enlightenment in China. If the, these are the, the, the educators uh, for the Chinese uh, enlightenment, you know, uh, we, we have no hope. Right. Um, well, uh, Jiaying, I, I just um, before I slit my wrists, um, maybe I can ask you, and Jeremy, about something that may encourage me even more to slit my wrists, which is uh, you published on uh, China Heritage. Uh, I think I don't know if it was um, Jeremy's title, Adieu China, uh, Jiaying Jia's Long Farewell, which is uh, uh, an introduction to an exchange published in Chinese originally, Freedom is Not Free, a new Decameron, uh, an exchange with, is it Kato uh, Yoshikazu, a Beijing-based writer from Japan. Can can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I know it's also not necessarily the happiest of subjects, but hey, today is all darkness all the time. Yeah, well, it, it, this book actually was two years in the making. Um, it, you know, I, I never imagined it would end up to be a tome of six hundred over six hundred pages, uh, and it just came out by um, uh, Oxford University Press in Hong Kong. But originally, it, it was um, uh, started um, uh, from a conversation between me and Kato. Uh, Kato uh, Yoshikazu uh, in uh, Beijing Salon, um, you know, in, in, in Beijing, it, this was, uh, the, I think, was the summer of 2018. And um, there's a full um, uh, houseful of young uh, students and young sort of uh, liberal people in Beijing, all very anxious and confused, even though that was, you know, about a year and a half or two years after Donald Trump's election. And the U- U.S.-China relations were taking a, 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 a radical turn 
for the worse. And and some of the students, of course, were also worried about whether they would continue to have access to 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 come to the West to study. And the liberal cause in China, you know, the American image was you know turning darker and 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 you know exploited by the Chinese government, you know, to rally the the country around a kind of anti-American kind of nationalist flag. So I thought it, it, during that conversation was the first time I actually talked about my own, you know, uh, heart-rending feelings uh, as, um, you know, a, a Chinese who, you know, uh, grew up in Beijing and, and romanticized America from my youth, from, you know, studied in the West, eventually become a U.S. citizen, had been traveling back and forth and feeling completely caught in between. Um, so, and we had, you know, this passionate, uh, conversation with all these, uh, uh, youngsters, you know, asking questions and everything. And that was the first time I realized perhaps there's a, this is the moment to talk about, you know, um, nearly 40 years of, um, a personal journey that I made traveled between America and China. And what does it mean, uh, at this moment? Um, to, you know, uh, to be a Chinese American and, and to write bilingually and, and all that. And, and so I, I have to say at, in, in the first, um, at the beginning, it was supposed to be, in my mind at least, a kind of a love song for America, you know, uh, for my generation who was, you know, sort of, um, called Deng Ta Pai, you know, the school of the beacon, you know, uh, uh, you know, we viewed America as our, as our icon, you know, um, to become a smaller and smaller minority uh, uh, in, in China was just, you know, such a heartbreaking moment. So at, at that moment, I wanted to basically tell the Chinese readers in Chinese, um, what does it mean, you know, to really come to America and then, you know, the journey from there on. But of course, as the conversation continued and, and Cato put in his bilingual, bicultural uh, experience between China and Japan, and also with, uh, he, he also had spent a couple of years in the U.S. So in the course of that conversation, of course, we ended up talking uh, a, a more about, you know, um, also the mixed, you know, sort of, uh, uh, message. I mean, it ended up to be uh, a really uh, re-evaluation uh, about what America means uh, and what does it mean to be, you know, a liberal Chinese, uh, you know, so-called, you know, cosmopolitan uh, Chinese at this moment of time. So, I mean, we, we were actually ended up, I mean, also uh, being critical of, you know, the uh, certain you know, deep-rooted problems America had. It's not just the ideal, but it, in reality, we have these, um, you know, racist, prob racist problems of racism. And, and you know, uh, where I talked about the first um, uh, three years I spent in the University of South, in South Carolina. So I had a lot of actually uh, really Deep South friends, American friends who are from the Deep South, um, some of whom are still my close friend today. And we, how we discuss about the problem of race and how, you know, um, I traveled, um, the, the route from, you know, a very kind of, um, simplistic, you know, kind of Chinese, uh, uh, use 
um, uh, viewing America in a simplistic way to, you know, today that we realize, you know, really, um, you know, you need to be uh, have this sort of independent, critical um, uh, mind about any country, and and you can't be a, a ideologue uh, in any simple fashion. I mean, so. Anyway, I'm start to get rambling here. Could I just uh, make a put in a plug for China Heritage? So Jenning very kindly allowed me to translate the introduction to this new book, "Freedom Is Not Free," that's just out this this last week or this week. Um, and she's also kindly allowed me to continue. And next year, um, I'm going to publish probably five, six, seven more selections from the book about. Uh, America, America and China, and about Jennings perceptions and Mr. Cato's perceptions of things. And it's going to form part of the um, next year's China Heritage Annual. Each year I have a theme. This year's theme was viral alarm. Next year is going to be called Spectres and Souls, which is on America, China, and the various battles for nations, souls, individual souls, spectres of the past, spectres of race, and so on and so forth. So Jennings' um, work has helped inspire this new series. Great. Very appropriately titled, I must say, Jeremy, because right. uh, it is uh, uh, you know, a, a, a soul-probing kind of um, moment, and, and it's full of ghosts <laughs> from the past, and, and you know, how do, how do we, um, you know, really go on from, from, from here, because there's so much uh, confusion and, and, you know, um, misgivings about the present and future. As, as Jeremy says, okay, boomer, we're, we're changing our both in our 60s now. And so it's a perfect time to sort of look back and be lost in reverie while the young have to deal with the mess we've left them. <laughs> Fortunately, I'm rapidly aging into your um, demographic. So hopefully the, the Zoomers will sort it out. Uh, Generation X is obviously completely hopeless. Um, before we go, Jeremy, can I ask, since today, uh, rather amusingly, the Communist Party leaked, uh, in uh, quote marks, leaked a, a document spelling out the 14 sins of Australia, the things they've done wrong and why they deserve, you know, to have their goods boycotted and tariffed and generally have Beijing being mean to them. Did you, <laughs> did you read anything about it? And do you have any comment on <laughs> China's new um, uh, uh, apparent adoption of Australia as its whipping boy, kind of not too, not too big and not too small? It's kind of the Goldilocks of countries you want to make an example of, I suppose. <laughs> Indeed, years ago, in Wen Fuying, now, now the state council spokesperson, when she was ambassador in Australia in 2006, 7, 8, around then, China's strategy under Hu Jintao was to try and see whether Australia would be the bellwether place, place in the Western alliance, whether it could be flipped, to use that terminology related to American elections. And they tried very hard, and it didn't work. And then they got a Chinese-speaking premier, Kevin Rudd, who didn't turn out to be the type of um, easy the fall guy that they wanted. And yes, it's been a constant you know, tussle in recent years and for decades. And there's a strong lobby in Australia to basically turn the country into a, a satrapy of China. It's, um, oh, I look forward to the 14 great crimes. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> that was a diversion from Seneca. 
one episode in an occasional series of chats about China and a bunch of other stuff. I've been your host, Jeremy Goldcorn. If you enjoyed this, please check out subchina.com for more or subscribe to this podcast.